Hey guys, I'm just popping in uh, really quickly because Annika and I noticed that we have our very first patron. So we wanted to give a big shout out and thank you to Kim who is going to support us in our mission to make enough money to eventually hire an audio editor so that we can produce more great content uh, but still keep a pleasant work-life balance. Thank you so much, Kim. I hope that other people join you soon. We've got great bonus content, our Bayview Cemetery tour available on Patreon currently, and really fun stuff coming up uh, that I know that you guys are going to enjoy. So thank you, and we love you. This is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. So, Maria, before we dive into this week's episode of Bad Town, what kind of hot goss do you have? Well, it's not hot, nor is it gossip, but I'm really looking forward to cooking Thanksgiving dinner. It'll be my first Thanksgiving away from my family, so I'm trying to look on the bright side and put all my energy into cooking the meal, which is sort of a rite of passage. Cool. What what are you going to do? Everything. I don't know. I, I ordered turkey parts from the Hagen, you know, all the regular stuff, the gravy and the stuffing and the cranberry sauce. But, you know, I'm Italian, so there's got to be a pasta dish. I like creamed corn, so it's me that. Rolls, salad, Brussels sprouts. It's going to be enough for uh, more than two people for many days. Nice. What about you? What are your Thanksgiving plans? So we originally had plans for my parents to come up here. Those are no longer. And so we are not sure what we're going to do yet. I mean, obviously, we're going to do something at home. But I think Tom will probably make a veggie pot pie Ooh. with, you know, mushroom gravy. And I don't know what else. Maybe I'll make <laughs> something for dessert. I haven't really thought about it much. But yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I hope all you guys are staying safe for your Thanksgiving and keeping it as small as possible. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of things we can be grateful for this year. What are you grateful for, Annika? Oh, many things. But right now I'm going to say I am grateful for our fans, of course. And, you know, I think we are both very thankful that you all tune in every week and keep listening. Yes. And if you want to be extra grateful back, make sure to check out our Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast. Link in our social media post. Yeah, we have lots of funny stuff planned, but we need people to sign up first so they can get it. Um, we do have a Bayview Cemetery tour up now on Patreon, but uh, more things will come. Yes, more things to come. Speaking of things coming up, what are we learning about this week, Annika? This week, we are learning about rum running, bootlegging, and labrine. Labrine being a reference to Good Time Girls, Colby Labrie's family lineage. So pretty much Bellingham's history with prohibition. Pretty fitting, based on my headache. <laughs> I had a little bit too much fun last night. Yeah, a Zoom party. Yes. Zoom happy hours. You don't think they can get crazy, but they can get crazy. Yeah. I would not be opposed to a short prohibition in my own life. 
at least for the next couple of days. Yes, a short personal prohibition, hopefully with less xenophobia. Good call. That's coming up right now on this week's episode of Bad Town. tell you a secret (laughs) come here i want to tell you something hey i'm mad at you (laughs) well you're really good at that it's kind of telling about what's going to happen hello and welcome to bad town where we discuss the darkest and baddest parts of bellingham and whatcom county history we are joined today as always by our season two co-host colby labrie bonjour (laughs) baguette (laughs) and marissa mcgrath hi i didn't take french so that's going to come up later i'm sorry about that So what story are you telling me today? So we're going to talk about rum running, bootlegging, and libriing in early Bellingham. And um, the libriing is because we're going to talk about Colby's familial connection to our ever fascinating history of prohibition. Labrie. No, no. <laughs> Baguette. Yes. <laughs> oh, ho, ho. Colby's middle name is Baguette. My name is Cheese La Cheese. <laughs> and today's story is about how prohibition played out in Bellingham. And how some recent immigrants supplied the people of Bellingham with alcohol through those dark times. Prohibition came to Bellingham through local ordinances long before the 18th Amendment to the Constitution brought prohibition to the whole country. We're going to run through some of the trials and tribulations, the local characters who got mixed up in the drama, including my great-grandpa. And talk more about our love-hate relationship with booze in the olden days. Prohibition. This was a big moment on the national level. What what else do we need to know about this before diving in? It's important to know that we were booze bags as a country. So early best estimates of American in the 19th century was that we drank three times as much alcohol as you know, in the early 19th century than we do today. People mm-hmm. were drinking the equivalent of about a gallon of whiskey a week. We also went from being a culture that had a hard time accessing hard alcohol. We drank a lot of like hard cider in the olden days. Mm-hmm. To one where we had a lot of access to to rum and whiskey because of just the way that agriculture was playing out and trade. And this led to some problems at the home front, as you might imagine, because the predominant people that were going out and drinking were men. There was lots of stories of men drinking their entire paychecks after they got paid and coming Mm -hmm. home with nothing for their families. And in some cases being like belligerent and abusive. So it got really wrapped up in women's rights. So talking about drinking in early America, you inevitably talk about people like Carrie A. Nation, which is a woman's real name. It was her married last name was Nation. Her name was Carrie A. Nation. <laughs> she was a famous uh, women's suffragist, but mostly she was an anti-alcohol activist. And she um, she was famous for showing up in bars with a hatchet and just destroying bars and threatening the men inside. You could get these Carrie A. Nation um, little hatchet pins at the time um, that she used as a fundraiser to try to support her work. Do you imagine if that happened in Bellingham today? No. 
Some like lady comes through with the hatchet. I mean, even if you just think about like the way that women were expected to act is it was pretty badass. Like you can't deny that that's kind of a badass way of engaging. Here's Carrie. (laughs) She was a Midwestern staple. And a lot of other women thought she was a little extreme, but understood where she was coming from. And what ends up happening that's a little bit more effective is there's these the anti-saloon leagues prop up all over the country. Um, they were really the big guns in the prohibition fight. So their strategy was to dry up towns and counties one by one via the local option laws. By 1913, nearly half of the towns were dry across the country. There was a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric that was mixed up in their messaging In 1910, for example, there were 2.3 million German, 4.7 million Irish, and 1.3 million Italian immigrants in a population of 92 million, which doesn't seem that significant in some ways, but it was they were considered to be very significant numbers at that point. And they Mm -hmm. were mostly Catholic and very much came from cultures that drinking was a big part of their culture. I, as an Irish American, and I've lived in Ireland, can say that we don't drink like Irish people drink. It's like air, um, (laughs) almost in some places. So yeah. So those that were opposed to drinking were using the tried and true, the immigrants are destroying our culture, that it's Mm anti-American. There's multiple references, particularly beer being anti-American, that it's a German Mm -hmm. and Irish invention, and that it is not American to drink beer, which is sort of baffling now. This is also, it's a story on the national level of voter suppression. So women's suffrage is often blamed for prohibition. As always, it's more complicated than just, you know, it's women's fault. What? (laughs) Yeah. But, um, you know, local election officials in a lot of places were working to stop immigrants from voting. I don't know if you've ever heard of something like that. It was a real problem back then. And it's obviously (laughs) something that's carrying on now. So it's interesting that until 1920, women couldn't vote, but immigrant men can vote. And then immigrants lose the vote that same year. And a lot of people who were breaking the the laws about alcohol later were were the rich but there were also these these like immigrant populations who didn't come from the same protestant puritanical culture as the dominant groups of america who were also interested in breaking the law and we're going to talk a little bit about how that plays out that sounds pretty relevant to today too when it comes to mind altering substances that are legal and illegal and whatnot yeah. i just think rich people love cocaine and they can get they get away with it <laughs> well i mean if you actually when you think about it we we've all lived through a prohibition of marijuana mm-hmm. and so it's like there was a lot of classification of marijuana as being the drug of the lower class but you could still have rich family members who can get access to it or rich people who can get access to it and today we have the same situation of where state laws and federal laws are at odds with each other which happened also during prohibition So how does prohibition play out exactly in Bellingham? Do we have specific stories or specific timelines about Bellingham at this time? Yeah. Prohibition comes to Bellingham sort of almost all at once. We were a wide open town, lots of working class guys, lots of brothels and um, servicing those guys and saloons servicing those guys. But then we start to get more families moving to town in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In 1910, a man named Billy Sunday comes to town, who is a real fire and brimstone, really popular preacher. Such like a friendly name for a fire and brimstone preacher. 
Yeah, well, his real name was Billy Sundtag. He was a descendant of German immigrants, but he changed it to Sunday, which is the English version of Sundtag. Oh, okay. I thought it, I thought it was because it was the Sabbath, and that would have really annoyed me. But since it was like, a- <laughs> well, it definitely helps his his whole brand, right? Is that his name yeah. is his name is literally Sunday. So when Billy Sunday came to town, one of the estimates was that twenty thousand people saw him speak over the course of multiple weeks that he was here, and they built a special tabernacle just for him, which is where the Rite Aid currently stands on Magnolia. Could you imagine coming to this place and thousands of people come to see you and your legacy centuries a century later is Rite Aid? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> he would talk about basically all the evils. It, he called this tour he was doing of the Pacific Northwest the Sawdust Trail. Like he was really going to logging towns and really trying to preach directly to the people who he felt kind of were up here, the dust bunnies who are sort of collecting in the corners of the country. He was really trying to connect with them. Oh, flyover country. Are we getting into Mike Huckabee land? Yeah. Yeah. And we were kind of, we were considered the backwaters in a lot of ways at that time. By the time he leaves, the local people are kind of whipped up into a fury for um, trying to push out the saloons. And the the group called the Municipal League formed right before Billy Sunday was on his way. They worked really hard to close the red light districts and they won. So they were all high off of that recent victory against Red Light District by the time he leaves, and they turn their sights on the saloons and work to shut them down. Prohibition was enacted as what was called a local option on January 1st, 1911. So the very last night that you could go to a saloon was New Year's Eve. So at this point in history, you could go to a saloon in Linden, but not in Bellingham. (laughs) So how the tables have turned. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because it was really just a city ordinance. That only happened here. Local leaders and moneyed men got around the anti-saloon ordinance, um, which said you couldn't drink in public by drinking in the in their established private clubs that had expensive memberships um, that were exclusively BYOB. And they were often segregated by religion. So you couldn't be a Catholic necessarily and go to this gentleman's club. You definitely couldn't be a Mormon. No. <laughs> but you probably self-selected to not attend. <laughs> The BYOB exclusive uh, gentlemen's mm-hmm. clubs. And there's like Dancing Girls, a famous gentlemen's club, famous to people like Colby and I, is the Cascade Club. And Mark Twain drank there as an honored guest when he came to town. So it comes up in a couple of, of stories. Yeah. Only because he couldn't get booze in the Fairhaven Hotel. Right. <laughs> so he, there were these little pockets in town of people being kind of anti-drink way before. Because Mark Twain comes in like the late 1890s, right? Yes. So the start of the Blind Pigs, which is our term for a speakeasy, it's a place where you supposedly pay for entertainment. And the drink comes with the cost of the ticket for the entertainment. So in mm. big cities, it was called a blind tiger because you were supposed to see a tiger in a cage or something like that. And presumably behind a blind, there was some kind there's, of... There's a lot of theories as to the origins of those terms. And I think there's also the reference to police, clearly. <laughs> right. It's blind to... The, <laughs> Which yes. was a thing at the time. But also, yeah, the, the prize pig. So you pay to see the pig and you get a free drink. So yeah, the thing is, is it wasn't illegal to possess alcohol unless the intent was to sell it. It also, it wasn't illegal to give alcohol away and it wasn't illegal to drink it. It was just illegal to sell it. Hmm. So that's where we come up with some of these more creative ideas about how to have your whiskey and drink it too. Until actually straight wide prohibition was like 1916. So then 
Washington goes dry, bone dry. So it went in like weird steps. You could still have it in your possession. Like you could have a bottle of wine in your possession. I think so. You just couldn't sell it. So you could have correct wine at Christmas because you're like, oh, this came from the old country. I've had this for years. Yes. But you couldn't be buying it. Yeah. There was all kinds of stages and loopholes and they'd have to like quickly make a new law. Like when the state went bone dry, suddenly everyone had a prescription from their pharmacist you know, for <laughs> spiritus frumenti. It's for my nerves. Yeah. <laughs> my wife needs it for her women's problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what were the... Uh, blind pigs or speakeasies like in Bellingham. Do do we know anyone who owned one of them or? Oh, yeah. We got a lot of stories. There's lots and lots of newspaper articles about blind pig in a candy store and, you know, various places and people being busted. But my favorite story came from my own family <laughs> history. So I was actually researching my own family genealogy when I found this story. So between 1914 and 1925, there were two Italian immigrant brothers, Francesco or Frank and Julius D'Aprile. My dad's side is Italian and I have like 12 Uncle Franks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a law. So they were in the news a lot for various violations of liquor laws. They ran a little Italian grocery um, on Holly Street. They were often referred to as jointists. They were running a joint. This is making me think more about marijuana. <laughs> I know. Mm -hmm. I know. It's weird. I'm just imagining them rolling doobies. <laughs> Uh -huh. With their like big mustaches and aprons that I imagine there were. Because I'm thinking of like, you know, a grocer, an old timey grocer that's an Italian rolling a joint is what's happening in my brain. So the news articles are very interesting and they give all kinds of details. Hidden stills and crazy rigged devices to dispose of booze and case of a raid and dancing girls that were employed at the joint with their scandalous bobbed hair. Mm -hmm. Young bootleggers who got their bottles from the men and then would go out in the streets and sell them out of their you know, pockets, basically. And the men who supplied the Deprile brothers with booze to sell, which included my great-grandfather, <laughs> whose name was Emery Labrie. So I discovered this whole story searching through my own family genealogy. So my great-grandfather, I discovered, is a runner. So he is essentially running booze across the Canadian border. So his family, they lived in Chilliwack, at the time, my grandfather was alive. He was so this was what his dad was doing to make some extra money. Uh, he would bring the booze down from Canada and sell it to these guys. He got busted and he basically became a stool pigeon in the case. Like a narc? Yeah. He basically ratted out all the bigger the bigger fish to get his sentence reduced. He also had, you know, three kids and a wife. <laughs> <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> nice. I had a I had a great grandfather that was a horse thief, so I'm not I'm not judging. <laughs> None of my family had ever heard the story. And I'm sure the shame in the family was more around the ratting out. <laughs> but the Tripoli Grocery was first located in the 600 block of Holly in the Union block, which is now gone. It was where the empty pit is now across from Chuckanut Brewery. And that building burned down. They moved to 708 Holly Street, which is the Marine Supply Building. So it's just kitty corner from where they were at, basically. By, you know, the teens, both of the Deprile brothers had been arrested several times 
for selling intoxicating liquors. And then in February of 1922, the Bellingham Herald reported on a case of stimulants. That makes it sound like a suitcase of Adderall or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wait, are so Adderalls this... upper? This is, hold on, important aside for me. Are Adderalls uppers or downers? <laughs> Uh, Adderall's an upper. Stimulant. It's yeah. a stimulant. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. And then... So that would be a stimulant. Uh-huh. So sorry, it's funny because when you say a case of stimulants, like I don't think of alcohol as a stimulant. No, it's not. It's a depressant. That's just a quote from the article. So unless it's yeah. like unless it's like a four loco or something, but they weren't yeah. like carrying those around <laughs> no. back then. The Canadians, I remember the Canadians really <laughs> going all in for the four locos. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, they found whatever the stimulants <laughs> in the taxi that was stopped for not having a proper license plate, I'm guessing. And the guy driving was not my grandpa, but he was a Canadian. And he had hired the taxi from the Hale Morton Taxi Company of Bellingham to transport a 15-gallon keg of moonshine whiskey from a farm in Ferndale. So he got arrested near the Tripoli grocery. <laughs> and when he was on trial... He said he had only gone to the farm to work and that Julius Deprile had hired him to drive this anonymous box from the farm. And he said it was to, supposedly to have been left there by a man named Lubbery. Dun, dun, dun. So he, he met him on the road and he said, I have this box for the Depriles. So he was arrested. Deprile was arrested, although everyone denied everything. That was another thing. In all these cases uh, involving the Depriles, they always went to a jury trial and they were always acquitted. Yeah, because like a jury of your peers in Bellingham are like, I don't know. These guys seem like they check out. I think it's fine. If I, if I convict this guy, who's going to get me my red wine i'm just gonna call it red wine <laughs> or my <laughs> right so later they get charged with more things eventually there's a third man arrested who was in the store when they raided it and that was my grandfather emery Libri. 10 quarts of moonshine were found at the time <laughs> nice yeah so part of the issue here i'd like not to beat up on Colby's great grandpa too much but was that what Emery Labrie was doing was also illegal in Canada so Canada was a colony of the British government still at this time and they had legal means of making and distributing alcohol and mm -hmm. it was one thing to smuggle like Gordon's gin that's been paid for and the tax and had been taxed by the government but it was entirely another thing to make your own alcohol and sell it untaxed so this is important because Colby found this amazing quote from the Herald that I want to read to you so in September of this the same year the herald has this headline that's the jail door yawns as two moonshiners disagree and i'm just going to read you <laughs> a couple of sentences from this just the way that they wrote in the newspapers is just magnifique so <laughs> here we go it, and you said you didn't take french i took that one word <laughs> in french <laughs> it's always fair weather when good fellows get together but when two fellows who are not yeah it gets better but when two <laughs> fellows who are out for the avowed intention of beating a grafting government by making their own whiskey and selling it to the proletariat at a reduced price get away from each other and see opportunities to make a dollar the other fellow won't know anything about then the darker clouds appear on the horizon and it is expedient if not extremely wise to stand by for a squall because as a girl said when a cinder got in her eye there's something in that by the way that was one <laughs> sentence <laughs> i know that was a tongue twister yeah it hurt it, my mouth hurts 
A story of moonshine and secreted stills of partnership to make whiskey in Canada and sell it cheaper than the government because the British government was making plenty of graft money out of the whiskey it sold. And of frequent trips across the border to Bellingham and up to Chilliwack on business for the firm was told in Judge W.P. Brown's Department of the Superior Court this morning. So that's that's how the I just it's always really fun no, to read the how the Herald was writing about things. It's like these guys just like really wanted to write Dickens and then they got stuck in this like corner of the world and had to <laughs> get paid by the word here instead but yeah they're like tongue twisters and so they're basically laying out there that these two guys got mad at each other after they decided that they were going to try to get one over not only on the canadian government but on the american government as well and, and supply alcohol to people who wanted it so emery labrie was arrested with another 15 gallon keg said to contain the juice of corn sprouts <laughs> which makes me feel gross <laughs> and pleaded guilty to similar charges on it's which apple cider vinegar. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, he pled or pleaded guilty to similar charges that this Trayman guy who got busted um, was convicted and sentenced. So the Herald further described how Labrie told the romantic story of trust and faith that was misplaced in his partner and how the still was hidden in a manure pile and the attempts that were made to place the blame upon him for overt acts to the law in the end for his pains as a storyteller and to impress him with the dignity of the state of Washington, he was fined $500 and given six months in the county jail. So <laughs> the still Emery Labrie built was um, unique in its design and it was said to be capable of boiling 20 gallons of mash and two gallons of white mule in an hour. Yeah, I loved that there was like a whole like separate article about the still. They were just like, we've never seen anything like this still. They were very <laughs> impressed with it. They're like, they literally spent an entire article just saying Colby Labrie's great grandpa <laughs> is a baller. We <laughs> <laughs> so what happens after that, Colby? Okay, so <laughs> in November of 1922, police again raid the Tripoli Grocery. The police are like, okay, voluntarily, please close your store or we're going to have to declare you a public nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so there's a clerk named Tony Bellino and three teenage girls who were taken into custody at the time during this raid. Those are the scandalous um, flappers with their bobbed hair. So the paper said the raid was executed at 830 o'clock when the place was crowded with about 30 customers who were lined up by the officers in one corner as a search of the premises was made. The search revealed, it is alleged, one quart of bonded whiskey and two gallons of moonshine. The quart bottle, it is alleged by the police, was found in the pocket of Tony Bellino, the clerk. The remainder of the liquor was found in a refrigerator at the rear of the tavern. So the implication there being that like the clerk has it in his pocket because he's like picking it out and pouring out shots at a time. On the sly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, in January of the next year, 1923, a trial begins and it brings a large record attendance crowd. And uh, Dupriele's defense was that he was framed by the stool pigeons, <laughs> otherwise known as my great-grandfather <laughs> and Mr. Trayman or Tremaine, as it's sometimes written. It's probable that my great-grandfather and Tremaine were given leniency in return for helping net 
the prelay, <laughs> of course, as stool pigeons are. Anyway, it, it goes on to talk about how, um, oh gosh, I love this trial because they talk about the dancing girls who are called as witnesses. These four girls were um, said to have danced in the establishment, and one of them, the 18-year-old Asile, Asile, I don't even know how to say this name. Yeah, it's A-C-I-L-E, Davis. And so I thought it was like, Asile, Asile. <laughs> Asile. <laughs> It's like Ashley. It looks like Lucille, (laughs) but with an A instead of an L-U. A seal or something. I don't know. Anyway, she took the stand and they described her as her bobbed hair fell about her neck when she removed her broad-brimmed hat at the request of the court. It's basically that saying, (laughs) she's a slut. That's what that's code word for. (laughs) She has a bob. So she testified that Bellino sold Psycho, spelled S-Y-K-O, Psycho, the alleged drug store booze in small glasses across the counter for which he received 25 cents a drink. And then he also sold moon in the back room of the joint. They're too lazy to say moonshine. They just say moon. Yeah. I need the moon. Moon and psycho and... That just reminds me of a weird energy drink or something. It's kind of like if we had a bar because there were no bars and we opened a bar where we just like sold people shots of Robitussin or something. (laughs) Okay, you guys, here's a confession. Oh, yeah, let's do this. Bad town. Let's go. Who's drank Robitussin besides me? Me. Okay. Woo! I'm not the only one. Wow, I forget what like a fucking punk rocker you are I'm sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, back to this trial. So I want to talk about this other girl, Elaine Warden, who was another 17-year-old, second of the bobbed hair, plucked eyebrow, powdered face, rouged lip, silk stocking, and short-skirted alleged dancing girls called by the state. Sounds like a real sister. Um, she... <laughs> <laughs> So she testified that she earned two bits an hour for working, which basically was like flirt with people and keep them buying drinks. Also, this is like in the 20s. That's like 25 cents. Isn't that what two bits is? I have no idea what the hell is. I'm pretty sure two bits make up a quarter. And so a quarter an hour is actually really good money. Well, I think you made like a dollar fifty a day, like hand canning salmon, you know. So Damn. It's rough. It was rough out there. (laughs) Yeah. So he got off then. So is that the end of it or what what came out of that? So Frank Deprile was arrested in September of 1924 in a raid on his Roma grocery store, which makes me think about your dog, Romy, by the way, Annika, the Roma grocery store. And the Herald reported how during the raid, the officers encountered a clever device. It was a device designed to dump the uncorked bottles of booze into a barrel of oil to disguise their contents. And the device's failure to work properly actually resulted in Frank's arrest. So the bottles had been placed in a partitioned box, so a box with a hole in it. And under the box, there had been placed a large container partially filled with oil. And attached to the box was this long wire, which the authorities found was extended down underneath the floor into a corner of the store and it was attached to a wooden handle so if the cops were like on their way and into the back room they could pull on the handle to dump all this moonshine into this like bucket of oil because mm-hmm. the alcohol would be kind of indistinguishable from the oil it would just like oh, like oh they would just yeah. you can't prove anything but what happens when they have this raid in um, 1924 is that one of the bottles flips all the way over like a fucking tiktok thing <laughs> like a tiktok <laughs> challenge 
and lands straight up and down. So no alcohol actually really spills out of it at all. So there's one bottle that's full of booze and all the other bottles are knocked out. Do you imagine just like the oh shit moment that... Yeah. Oh. And so that was a sufficient Ooh. evidence to arrest the grocer. And according to the Herald during the trial of Janu- in January 1925, Frank's son Joseph, probably like a teenager, explained how he conceived of the idea for the contraption so that he could haul wood from the basement. It was supposed to just, <laughs> he was pretending it was like a lazy Susan or like a dumb waiter. It's like a dumb waiter from getting wood from the basement. It has nothing to do with that. It's a box attached to a wire to help me get wood up here. So because only one bottle hadn't spilled, the defense argued that uh, that alcohol didn't even belong to them because it didn't spill. It's not the best argument, but it's also mm-hmm. just one bottle of booze so despite the best efforts of the defense the jury this time found frank guilty and he was fined 350 dollars and sentenced to 90 days at the county farm the county farm being the kind of like white collar go out there and just like do some not hard time more like you're growing vegetables they honestly sent a lot of people out there on booze charges because they didn't have capacity there were so many busts <laughs> I'm going to say white, white collar crime punishment sounds like liberal arts college student graduates and goes abroad, works on a farm. Yeah, totally. It's not far from that. It's like they joined the Peace Corps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's out at the corner of the Smith Road and Northwest Avenue. Yeah, across from Old Green's Corner. Oh, wow. Okay, so what came of the brothers? So they finally shut down their grocery in 1925. Julius de he died in Bellingham in 1934. He was only 45 years of age. And he was described in his obituary as having served in the Great War and that that really robbed him of his successes. He was a member of various clubs and things around um, being a World War I veteran and supposedly had a lot of issues from serving in the war. It also, his obituary described his thriving importing business of Italian products with a large retail store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was recognized as a leader among persons of Italian birth here. Then, in the early summer of 1918, he left behind that which he had created and donned an army uniform. Returning to Bellingham after the close of the conflict, De Prelay strove to again retain his prestige, but fate appeared against him. He never again reached his pre-war heights, and a service-incurred disability finally forced him from business. He was intensely patriotic, and the large assemblance that attended his funeral services at the Church of the Assumption Friday morning bespoke of his friendships. Mm. And his brother Frank, Frank lived longer. He died in 1953. So Julius, like, they had the grocery store, and then he goes and is in World War One. Right. Proving that he's a patriot and loyal to this country. Yeah. Fought against the Italian government. World War One was insanely brutal. I feel like so many people like just got messed up, like hardcore post-traumatic stress disorder before right. that was even a thing. Yeah. We see like the first filming of like shell shock and, you know, there's like lots of bombing post-industrialism war. And so, yeah, yeah it's there's a lot of kind of vague references and when we look at local history about men right. who were in the Great War were in World War One and came back and were just kind of there's a little bit of a sadness that mm-hmm. gets that's kind of runs through a lot of the conversation about them. Like they went and saw things and experienced things that we don't we can't even really describe and we won't necessarily know. But yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, to think about this too, like in nineteen thirty four he's forty five. So all this time we've been talking about, he's like in his twenties and like early thirties of owning this this little speakeasy. And I think to our modern brains, we wouldn't have necessarily thought he was doing anything all that bad. It's just he was 
I think he was really sympathetic to a lot of people. Yeah. And like, it wasn't like I was saying earlier too, like it wasn't part of the French Canadian or the Irish or the German or the Italian culture to feel bad about drinking. So it was more, you know, the laws of this country don't match with my morals. So I'm going to choose my morals and also just like my cultural heritage of getting together with people and having a social drink. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's the vibe that I get a lot from the, the early blind pigs also this was an opportunity to make some money let's let's not <laughs> yes. not look <laughs> not pretend that's not in the equation <laughs> yeah. i'm always like trying to be like you know i just like i really feel for these people and colby's like yeah yeah, yeah. let's get down to brass ticks <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of money made during prohibition i'm just kind of pissed that my family didn't manage to pull it off like what are they doing yeah 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 <laughs> well, I mean, they got caught, Labrie. <laughs> I know. And then apparently, so I don't really know, like, he stayed out of trouble after that, my great grandpa. And he actually, they moved to Bellingham post-Prohibition in the 30s. They moved to a house in the Silver Beach neighborhood right across from the old Silver Beach Elementary School. And um, I have great pictures of them at their house. And you can see the school in the background and they're pouring things of booze. Mm -hmm. it, it's hilarious because I'm like, it looks like they're celebrating the end of Prohibition in the photo based on the, you know, the style and everybody's ages. I'm assuming that's what's going on. Or it could but... have just been a Wednesday. Exactly. <laughs> and another night at the Labrie household. But what, what cracks me up is that my great grandfather, he was actually hired on the police department for a brief time. Yeah. Stuff like this did not disqualify you, right? There was one woman who was arrested for prostitution in Bellingham, ended up being an elementary school teacher not long after she was arrested. It's so fascinating the things to me. she taught those kids. I know. Mm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's great. I love it. So, okay. So just in conclusion, <laughs> so the, the Volstead Act... It really had like codified Bellingham sentiment that booze was bad. But in 1933, the law came to an end with the 21st Amendment. So Bellingham went back to normal and bars opened, dance halls that came, that kind of uh, cropped up. And that was really common with visiting World War II soldiers because we had that bases nearby. There was no dancing. You couldn't have music <laughs> when drinking right, was right. allowed again. But so then they popped up on the outskirts of town and all these weird laws happened over time, right? With drinking. Yeah, it wasn't just like they flipped the switch and the light, they flipped the lights back on. And I was thinking about this too. I'm thinking about the concept of they went back to normal and like we keep talking now with COVID about going back to normal and it feels like there's no real normal to go back to. Like um, the culture was really changed in a lot of ways. Like you're saying, Colby, it's like, yeah, there were dance halls. They weren't necessarily in downtown, but they were nearby. And then you could, you could dance at this place, but they only had soft drinks. We go over here and get a beer and like there were brothels <laughs> and you could drink in the brothels, but we really, we really never gone back to the levels of alcohol consumption from pre-prohibition era, which is probably a good thing. One thing that fascinated me was the whole issue of sitting while drinking and bar stools. So if you think about saloons and like there were no stools, they bellied up to the bar and they put their foot on the brass rail. And But after Prohibition, they we don't want to go back to saloons. So they made all these weird rules and um, mm -hmm. they basically took bar stools from like soda fountains and ice cream parlors and you had to sit. Also, like there were all these weird laws, like a woman couldn't order a drink at the bar. She had to be seated at 
at a table. These were all leftovers from like, we really don't want to go back to saloon days. Saloon culture was so heavily male and it wasn't like it was illegal for women to go to them, but it wasn't cool. I was like, you know, they just like invited the ladies, let them into the party. They probably wouldn't have joined Carrie Nation, so hardcore. Right. If the women had always been included, it might have been a different situation. But also, the other thing that changes so much from before and after is the 1920s, right? And women are going out and they are drinking in these speakeasies when that really With didn't men. happen before. Yeah. <laughs> there was like racial mixing. There was yeah. crazy, like sexual, like women with short hair, those masculine women and feminine men. Who is the rooster? Who is the hen? Yeah. And gay men being part of an underground culture and just sort of like, gay men sort of like welcoming like oh did you want to drink in this basement we've been drinking in this basement (laughs) forever Mm -hmm. when you start to go okay this one thing that my society decided was bad i disagree i don't think that alcohol is bad so what are else what else around me that society's telling me is bad can i actually like think about more critically and i think Mm -hmm. gender and sexuality and propriety in general was something that a lot of people looked at and was like look you know if you think i'm bad because i drink you're gonna throw the baby out with the bathwater. like i'm gonna bob my hair i'm gonna wear a short skirt i'm gonna smoke cigarettes i'm gonna go hang out with boys and take birth control and have a good time Yeah, well, it's kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, if you make normal people criminals, then criminals they will be. Mm -hmm. Well, this was great. So thank you so much, ladies. And be sure to tune in next week for more Bad Town. So speaking of ways to get your alcohol fix, we are going to do our final and favorite segment, Local Treasures, where we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride. What's your pick this week, Annika? My local treasure this week is the cocoa combustion from Galloway's. It's a hot drink with whipped cream on the top. It looks, it's, yeah, delicious. Great. Yeah. And it has toasted hazelnut-infused bourbon with pistachio syrup and hot cocoa. And make sure you check out uh, Galloway's carryout options, cocktail kits, and they have a few spots for outdoor seating with weather permitting. So make sure you check that out at Galloway's and, of course, everywhere else that is offering all of these things during the closures. Absolutely. My pick this week is... Otherlands beer, especially their Keller beer and their Saison. I I recently picked up a couple of growlers from them and an order of pierogies too that I thought were delicious. They're a newer brewery in town. I think the newest addition to our wonderful collection of breweries. Mm-hmm. They're up by Home Skillet. They're really great. They've got outdoor seating as well and beer and food to go. So definitely make sure to check them out. Nice. All right. I think that about wraps things up. Annika, what should the listeners expect next week? Next week, we will be learning about Bellingham being a bad town. And I mean, really bad town. Badder than usual? What do you mean? (laughs) Meaning that we will be learning about Bellingham's history with the KKK. Ooh, spooky. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM 
every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from The Good Time Girls for being incredible season two co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week. See you.